this is not just for DTC brands or retail brands, right? Like this is for most businesses. The challenge is not the data anymore. The data is there. The challenge is still how do I contextualize the data and take the right action? Ego is that thing that ultimately pulls us forward and like makes us do harder things than we ideally would like to do, right? The crucial thing for me as founder is just being aware of when the ego shows up has been critical for me to better manage it, basically. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Building Blocks podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adi Pernar, who is the founder and CEO of Quasi. Been a big fan of this app. Um, finally got you on the show. Um, Quasi, if you guys aren't familiar, is an app that allows you to do inventory planning, inventory forecasting, and just overall a such a great tool to be a part of your operation app stack. Um, previously, Adi was a co-founder of of um, WooCommerce, sorry, um, which was acquired. Congratulations. And he also worked on another platform called Conversial, which is also acquired. So this is your third company now, right? Well, yes, the third one is still alive. I mean, there's uh, there's a few um, you know skeletons in the closet along the way, or um, you know kind of zombies that, that didn't make it. Um, but yes, like those the you know, the three you mentioned there as the the more, more prominent ones. And I see I do see Cogsy as the kind of the third rodeo here. I mean, three is still like three big ones that you can write about. It's really good because everyone has a lot of skeletons in their closet. I have maybe 20. Oh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So having three big ones, it's a, it's a, it's a feat. Well, I mean, yes, I feel very fortunate, right? I think, um, you know, there's, there, there's obviously part of me that um, it feels I mean, post-conversion, by the way, like post-conversion getting acquired, I, I really considered loads of different options of things that I could do, right? So like everything from, like, could I just become, like, a full-time investor? Could I go into consulting? Could I do some coaching? Like, I, all, all those things I enjoy doing. Um, and I ultimately gravitated back to, to building another product because as a founder, I think um, the two things I most love about the kind of the journey is the product part. That's the hat that I wear kind of most naturally. And then I truly, truly, truly love the team building aspect. Like I, I love the idea of like, you know, finding amazing human beings um, and then kind of you're crafting a culture um, and then working, like figuring out then like my latest thing is like truly figuring out like how, like what needs to be true for me to empower all those unique individuals to, you know, kind of you know, just be their, A, their best selves, but like B, do kind of incredible work. Um, so truly passionate about that. Hence, like, hence here I am, like third, third time, um, got lucky, raised some money just at the right time um, and trying to, to build something that's interesting in a, an interesting space. I love that. What's something recent that you accomplished that you're very proud of? Yeah. Um, I mean, like probably in that, that same line, Jason, I think, uh, when I look at Cogsy today, um, the, what's so uh, kind of a little bit of backstory. So my co-founder Stefano was my first, um, my first hire um, at Convergio. So he and I worked together for about seven years. And it was during the time at uh, Convergio, at least, that um, my team and I stumbled onto this idea of being life and family first. Um, and that kind of the way we structured the team there was the kind of the precursor of the the book that I ultimately wrote, which uh, is titled Life Profitability. And I wouldn't make this about the book, but um, what Stefan and I did when we started working on Cogsy was we were really intentional about what we wanted 
our values um, to be and what that kind of meant for our culture in terms of how we work together. So um, I'm really proud when I kind of you know, look at the at least the digital room, like we've not had the team together um, in the same room just yet. Um, that should happen in August when we meet up for a team offsite. But when we look around the room, there's it's a diverse room um, full of really amazing human beings. Um, and we've kind of crafted the, the culture and before, just before you hit the recorder, I told you that, um, you know, I, I recently welcomed a new baby um, to the family and like I managed to take time off because the team is in such a good place um, and there's such clarity and alignment around um, kind of everything from how we work to what we work on that I like, it was pretty fine for me to not be around full time for, you know, two, three weeks. Um, and like that's as a, as a leader and a kind of company builder, um, that's something I'm incredibly proud of. And it truly is. You know, you know, not a lot of people give credit to the people. Um, the people is truly the, the ones that built the company. Yes. Um, and so if you built a really good team, you built a really good company subsequently. Um, congrats on the new human. Um, but more amazing at the fact that you're able to take time off. Um, you know, like we don't get parental leave usually. Um, like you, usually we don't get anything at all as founders. Um, and so our, our form of paternity leave is before the baby comes, build a really kick-ass team that we can step away from and maybe have to work 50% less. That's our parental leave. So exactly. I love that for you. Exactly right. And I, like, I think just a kind of, um, a big thing for me, like coincidentally, what happened for the Cogsy team there was I was the first member of the team that would welcome a new family member, right? So like, it was very tricky. Um, like, how do we, like, on the agenda for us was to talk through paternal leave, right? Both paternity and maternity and, like, how we structure it. Because what the kind of, especially in the States, like, statutory requirements for kind of new new moms, like, it's it's insane how little support they kind of, most companies give their teams, right? Um, so it was really a case for me to, like, whatever I did, like, I told the team as well, should not become the president for what we eventually do. But you want to kind of want to lead with, by example, to some extent, at least, right? Um, which I, which I think, I, I managed to at least partially do. I love that. I love that. And so, you know, after so many skeletons in the closet and so many major milestones under your belt, there's definitely a lot of things that turned on in your brain during this process. You know, that thing that click that really changed the way that you work. Um, and, and I'm very curious to hear that because I ask the same question to a lot of founders. First time founders, second time, third time, some who have exited for a lot of money. There's usually that one thing that clicked. What is it for you? Yeah. Um, well, and I'm, what I can tell you is there's probably been multiple things that clicked, right? Like different seasons in one's life. Um, like I, I really like the kind of um, the the Buddhist mindset of like when the student is ready, the master appears. So like I know that at various stages of my life, um, like that that new thing clicked into place and that kind of set up the new season. And I think, you know, one of the most recent things, um, Jason was, uh, kind of, uh, during a part, um, of Convergio, I was, I was really, so I, I've always had like an in, insane, like thirst for learning. I'm a super curious person and I can like read like loads of different things. Um, and I was doing like years where I was like reading a hundred books a year, like fiction, nonfiction, like not just business kind of yeah. stuff. Um, and I was really reading a lot. And I stumbled onto this kind of, um, and like at the same time was, I also started my own um, kind of mindfulness journey. And uh, a friend pointed out and said, Adi, just remember that the pursuit of no ego is also still ego, right? Mm -hmm. And like the, 
the realization for me there with the learning was that with all this learning, I was trying to kind of run my life and kind of run my business in a very, very, very formulaic way, right? Based on all these learnings, because like these are learnings, like it resonates. And what it actually did for me was, especially with Converger being a second kind of business, um, I was hyper vigilant about everything that could go wrong. And I think like once I had that realization, I actually stepped back a little. And, you know, these days, I mean, I, I, I still, I'm very, very keen to learn. Like, I mean, Cogsy plays in a space in which I'm not necessarily an expert. Like I've never been an operator at a retail brand or been responsible for operations at retail brands myself. Um, so I've got loads of learning to do, but it's different. Like I think these days is more about, um, you know, in some seasons for me to relax a little bit and be in the flow. So you're still, you're still showing up, you're still doing the work, you're still learning, but without that kind of rigid pursuit of, Hey, I need to kind of be learning for the sake of learning. If that makes sense. I love that. I, I recently came in contact with, the, the the whole concept of mindfulness and um, went on a little bit of a spiritual journey, um, started meditating as well, met some incredible people who said this is what changed their life. And um, I, I totally understand that. I, I started seeing how so many decisions and thought process I had was coming from ego. And, and it's not in the traditional sense of what people think having a big ego meant. It's like everyone has ego to an extent. Yes. Um, and oftentimes we let that guide us and make decisions that we think is good because we thought we, we thought we want that. But in fact, it's not the right choice for the company or it's just not the right energy to be moving towards. And then I started learning about energy, you know, like people really do have different energy and like what kind of energy you want to bring to your life. And, you know, I, I love that the conversation here, or at least the answer here, isn't going towards here's like a tactic or hack that I did, but more so on mind. Like your your mind is so important as a founder, and having the right mindset changes the entire trajectory. Totally right, and I think there, there's something there. Like you and I can, um, you know, take this. I, I, it sounds like you and I can take this conversation in a way very what many people might would consider a very woo woo kind of you know, um, you know area. <laughs> like I think you, to your point about ego, Jason. I think. Um, I don't think anything worthwhile in the world has ever been done without any ego, right? And what I mean by that is like, like ego is that thing that ultimately pulls us forward and like makes us do harder things than what we ideally would like to do, right? But we do it because there's ego there. I think the crucial thing for me as founder is just be aware of to what extent ego is present in any action decision so that ego doesn't rule and dictate that kind of almost zombie-like state where I'm just like, you know, kind of um, so narrow-minded in terms of how I'm doing things. Because like, that's that's tough, right? Like I think um, just being aware of when the ego shows up has been critical for me to to better manage it, basically. I love that. I love that. Getting a little bit into the more tactical side of the show, um, you know, on the concept of building blocks, I, I made the show because I was having so many conversations with my friends like you, and I'm like, man, I'm asking some questions that I feel like will help a lot of other people. Um, and I know I sometimes call on YouTube for help for inventory. You've been there. You you went through my Excel sheet and said, nope, don't do that. Let's use my stuff. And so I want to move this conversation to the rest of my viewers because I know inventory is such a big topic right now. Inventory has been, ha hasn't been this important ever um, because supply chain times are longer so people need to plan better um people's money are dried up so they need to spend their money on the right amount of inventory at the right time um, for the right products 
Um, and, and so like, this is one of those topics where I felt like if we don't do this early enough, some people will really, really get hurt before Black Friday. And that's why I place you at this exact same moment. Like, this is very strategic. I reach out to you because I'm like, let's get this out in June <laughs> and let's make sure that people can, can yeah. really plan ahead. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, inventory uh, as, a, as a process in the e-commerce space. Like, what is it something that people need to be more cognizant of in, in order to be a better planner? Yeah, so I think there's a... Um there's, there's probably loads of kind of your mantras. Like anyone that's followed either myself um, or kind of your cogs on any of our social media channels will see that there's there's a few kind of your things that um, like we've been very loud about or very kind of you know, very specific about. I think the the key things when I think about inventory and how that relates to operations, Jason, is um, and again, like I, my first perspective here is I, I studied accounting and I was going to become a you know, chartered accountant before um, before founding Woo and. <clears throat> I think my first perspective is always like, what needs to be true for a brand to optimize the kind of the, the for optimize the amount of working capital they have, right, to get the appropriate ROI, right? Like I think um, again, like I understand venture capital is prevalent in most industries to some extent today, um, but way back when we started working on Woo, we were completely bootstrapped. So, um, and where that mentality comes in is you, you take a single input and you try and get as much kind of, you know, out of that input as you can, right? But there's always a constraint. And I think, you know, to your point, like supply chain, chain kind of, you know, the lead times shifting, um, you know, capital or financing being kind of limited. There's a constraint here, which means the focus should always be on how do I make most of what I have, right? So like you mentioned a couple of things there, right? So kind of right amount of product at the right time, et cetera, right? At the right cost. Um so I think that's the first perspective there. And then I think broadly speaking, I think I, I really think brands have enough data and too many reporting tools across different things. Like the challenge, and, and not just, this is not just for DTC brands or retail brands, right? Like this is for most businesses. Um, the challenge is not the data anymore. The data is there. It can be re reported on. The challenge is still, how do I kind of, how do I contextualize data and take the right action? And for us at least, the, the, the way we're thinking about Inventory is that, yes, like we can't speed up um, a factory line, right? Like that's very hard to do. Like the only the factory kind of you can do that and the people that run that. But what we could probably do is kind of based on what is happening in your business, we can allow you as the owner or operator of the business to take action kind of sooner, more proactively, right? And then doing so in a, in a smarter way. So like much of the thinking, like when we talk about Cogsy, like we'll always talk about Cogsy being an action-taking platform, right? Like it is really meant, the, at least the bigger vision thereof, is meant to drive specific actions um, in your business that ultimately comes back to, as I said, like optimizing that working capital that you have deployed in the business. I love that. I love that. Um, you, you've been in this space for... Uh, at least for inventory, at least for, um, is it, has it been a year yet? Uh, a little bit over a year, like year and four months. So you obviously seen a, a lot of people, a lot of merchants, a lot of data. I want to hear a little bit more about uh, what are some ways that they messed up? We messed up. Um, I, I know I, I, when you talk to me, you're like, uh, -uh. I, I bet you're shaking your head when you're talking to me of like how I plan my inventory. I had, <laughs> I had an Excel sheet. Was that, was that probably the first mistake? So, so yes, I think, um, let's say this about spreadsheets, right? Like a spreadsheet is a very, very flexible kind of you know, user interface to do many, many things. Um, and many, like, 
I have spreadsheets in my business, right? Like I think like the Cogsy's purpose here is not to remove all spreadsheets from, um, from the operations for brands. The challenge with a spreadsheet is it normally is a very static document until it gets updated, right? Which means that kind of the this kind of that feedback loop that you get is only as strong as the discipline you apply to it. Which often means like if you, if you don't update it kind of often enough, you're not getting those kind of leading indicators that something has changed, right? Like you suddenly had sales velocity that just crept up by just enough and you're just like, well, we had a couple of you know, good days of, of revenue there, but you don't realize that what this actually means is you're going to run out of stock four or five days sooner now, right? Um, so like that's the limit of a spreadsheet. So I think that's, yes, like many brands that have switched to Cogsy, like we are switching them away from spreadsheets and like the our big pitch there is like we can do the same math that you can do in a spreadsheet, but we're always on um, and like, and we don't make mistakes, right? So I think... That's the first part. Um, but when you ask me, like, any, like, what's the biggest challenge like, for brands um, like, to start thinking about, you know, forecasting for the inventory, um, planning for the inventory? It really is about the underlying data, Jason. Like, I think, um, like, and this is not just a systems issue because like, we integrate with loads of different systems, everything from IMSs, ERPs, 3PL um, solutions, e-commerce platforms like Shopify, right? Um, so it's not a systems issue that's at fault here. But for many of these brands, um, again, they've not they've not had the discipline to maintain that underlying data, um, which means, like again, like I think historical data is only one part, at least, of how to plan for future inventory, at least. And yes, like Cogsy does that. We ingest all of your historic data and like, that's how we build a baseline forecast. Um, we've also just built other tools that again, like not just consider those lagging indicators that sits in the historic data, but build kind of leading indicators um, into it to help you be more proactive. But again, like without that data being in a good shape, like when you're changing kind of your SKUs, for example, um, like those things like mess up the data. And we've had to build a lot of um, additional tooling just to help brands kind of unscrew their data to get some signal or some insight um, out of the data that they already have. I love that. I love that. Um, I, I know placing the first PO is always going to be the most nerve wracking thing. Um, I, I get asked that a lot because, you know, I, I teach a class on supply chain and <laughs> truthfully, it's one of those questions that I never have the full confidence to answer because it's so it's so context dependent. It's depending on your budget. It's depending on like your products, depending on your marketing plan, you know, what, what's your sell-through rate or expect a sell-through rate. There's so many things that could go wrong if, if one of those is wrong. Um, so I'm quite curious to hear your take. If someone comes to you and be like, how do I place my first uh, PO? What would you say? Yeah, so, um, and I'm assuming like the, the, the context in the example there is, this is a new brand, they're starting to sell um, kind of from scratch, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think first things first, like, I, I'm a software guy, right? And I like, the, where software is kind of an easier business to run is like you, the commitments you need to make, you can pretty much undo loads of them, right? In a very kind of quick and efficient, um, you know, manner. Um, whereas with that first purchase order, that's probably not it. So um, what I would actually do is I would be very conservative on a first PO. Like I would rather undercommit um, and I would sell out sooner and I would play it out as more of a kind of a, almost a, a, a product drop, right? Um, first, 
and then figure out kind of demand. So that's the one way. Like you could probably do some pre-orders beforehand to get some sense of your own kind of acquisition channels and the kind of the appetite for the market and your ability to convert those into sales. Like knowing that a pre-order won't convert as well as an actual product that's on sale right now, but that's signal as well. But even then, like I would be more kind of you know, cautious. I think um, where I saw this play out best, and I don't think this is necessarily what they did, but um, for oh, one of the Kardashians had a... Um, I was, I think it was one of the makeup brands. Anyway, and my wife wanted um, to buy some every single time. So we're in Cape Town, South Africa. Time zone difference was always a challenge. But they would always sell out within the first hour, right, of them kind wow. of l- launching these things. And But then a week later, they had stock again, right? So I think it was a kind of artificial scarcity because, like, we were just speaking about lead times. It's It's unlikely that their manufacturer kind of would have been able to top them up with new stock within a week, right? But I actually think like going back to my suggestion of um, being cautious in that first PO, like there is a way to play it um, where and message it that, hey, this drop sold out and the next drop only kind of happens kind of the next time. Because nobody, the market does not know that you only had 500 units. The market might think like, geez, like they, like, just launched and they sold out 10,000 units, for example, right? So like yeah. you can you can probably play that to your advantage if you're smart. Um, and crucially, and the reason why I you know, didn't recommend that is you protect, protect your downside, right? Like you're not going to be overstocked on a product that you might not be able to sell as quickly um, as you thought. So like you have some cash on hand to try and do other things. Absolutely. I think tying your cash into inventory is probably the, the biggest killer to a business because you're your conversion rate for or conversion cycle for that cash is gotta be months down the line. Yes. Much rather yes. put that towards hiring or or marketing. Uh, one of my business, I actually sold the products before I even had any products made. I had oh. a Photoshop picture of the product and I started selling that. But the only reason why I was able to do that is because I knew exactly what the lead time was for it, and the lead time was 10 days. So I just started selling it and I knew that if I put a expected date on my product page saying, hey, this product's on pre-sale, but if you order today, it'll get shipped out on a date 10 days from now. Um, and so if you're able to manage expectations there, perfectly fine. If you're going to be six months down the line from delivering that product, do not do that because your payment will get hold. You'll get a lot of complaints and <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad start. And I love the whole um, artificial scarcity uh, concept because people some, and to an extent want to buy things that other people want to get yeah it, you know when you think about the, the buying intent on a website there are some people who buy it and they're like i don't care i will buy it right now because i generally want it there's and then there's a subset of people it's like i've heard about this and then i kind of want it and then there's a group of people who literally only buy things that other people want yeah. and we're talking yeah. about like the street where it's a hype products like the products who you saw on TikTok, you don't know if it's good, but you know that everyone's getting it and you should get it. Um, and those are the people that you want to capture, their emails. You want to make sure that they're on your next wait list. Um, and those are the people that are, I, I would say, are perfectly fine with waiting. Um, as long as you're able to give them like a little token for saying, hey, you're now next in line. T- t- totally. And I think, um, you know, on that point, Jason, we, um, with one of our first customers, Caraway, um, Caraway Cookware, right? They... We pioneered the functionality that we now call it um, customer-centric backorders. But the idea there is very, very similar to what you said there, which is like when Caraway is out of stock for their primary SKUs um, and when they know that they've got a near-term kind of shipment of stock coming in, they keep on selling 
um, to the customer. So they, they, they're never out of stock. And they just tell the customer using Cogsy kind of in a dynamic automated fashion that, hey, the next available shipping date for this product is 14 June, right? So, and again, like they can do it because it's a specific kind of product, right? Um, like it's probably more of a kind of your know, premium good, um, but that converts significantly higher than, for example, being um, on a wait list because the purchasing intent at that moment that I'm on the website is very, very high. Whereas if you send me an email in two or three weeks at a time, you say, hey, Eddie, like this product is now back in stock. I'm like, well, yeah, guys, I, I actually already found another frying pan that I like, right? Because um, I, I needed it. Um, but yes, like, and that comes down to, that's the reason we call it customer-centric is it's just about managing expectations. And that won't appeal to every buyer. And I don't think it works for every single product. But generally, if you kind of, you know, customers tend to wait for, or are willing to wait for some purchases but you need to manage the expectations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Eddie, thank you so, so much. This is honestly one of the more important topics beyond marketing or beyond like all, all these other topics that I usually speak about. I am a big, I'm a big operations guy. I'm an operator. Uh, and so I've always tell people you need to manage your inventory properly. Um, so thank you so much for calling me out when you talk to me and say, you need, you need me. Uh, great decision I made and thanks for coming on to the show you're most welcome thanks for having me Jason you just heard an episode of the building blocks podcast if you like what you heard subscribe below to keep hearing conversations that I have with brilliant marketers founders and innovators on how they built their best ideas now if you want to learn how you can turn your best ideas and build something massive out of it visit my website bbclass.co or follow my twitter at agro 